0: A couple things, real quick, before we get into this. I'd invite you to look to Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. We're going to actually be in Acts chapter 1. We're going to be in Ephesians 1. We're going to be in Philippians 1. We're going to be in a number of places this morning. But we're going to root ourselves in Acts chapter 1. First of all, shout out to those, and the the children are leaving now. There they go. A shout out to those who served last night with the first parents' night out. There were 23 children that were here, eight families. And um, my understanding is some people were worn out when they were done. Those adults, were, people who were coming in today were going, man, I'm tired. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all those who served. And um, please, um, they'll, they'll, we'll be doing that again. But um, thank you for those who served in that capacity. And what a great night that was. Let's talk about one of the weird parts of the Bible. Sometimes the Bible is kind of odd. Kind of strange. And today is a strange Sunday because today is Ascension Sunday. Ascension was actually Thursday, but today is Ascension Sunday. The next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. We're coming to the end of what we call the Easter season and this series called the Easter People. But well, let's look to Acts chapter one at one of these strange places. And we're really going to be asking ourselves this question, because we talk about it in church circles all the time. We talk about Jesus being Lord, but we're going to ask ourselves the question, okay, so what does that really mean? And we're never going to get into all of that in one sermon, but I hope today that we find ourselves maybe thinking differently about this. But let me start with this. I've discovered that my three granddaughters are some of my most favorite people in the world. You know, 15, two and a half, and I don't know, five weeks now, six weeks. I just, I could spend hours. I do spend hours with them. My granddaughter, two and a half year old granddaughter, Livy, and I have rituals. When she visits, there are specific things that we do. First of all, she likes to go to my office and play my jambe, which is an African drum. And she likes to do that and then stop and shake the pole light. And For some reason, she thinks those go together. She takes my hand and she climbs over to the ottoman. And uh, holding both hands, she jumps up and down, as high as she can do that. And I think to myself, I would have never let my kids do this. As she's just jumping, jumping, and I try to get her as high as she can. Outside, she'll ask me to pick her up and walk back and forth on the front porch as she hits the various different wind chimes. But there's one ritual that I think is my favorite ritual with Olivia, and it's inevitably this. Within moments of her arrival at her home, she usually says one thing. She says, plain. She'll hear the hum of a plane taking off from Nashua Airport and circling over our house, and she'll shout, plane, plane, and we run outside. I pick her up, and we point, and we wave, and we say, hello, Mr. Plane. She waves, and I wave, and I'm the one yelling, hello, Mr. Plane, and my neighbors are going, there's that weird neighbor. And I love it when she throws her head back and she smiles and she waves and she's like so amazed by the plane. We'll, we'll be sitting in the house and there, she'll hear the hum of the plane before any of us will and she'll just stand right up and we know what we got to do. But she does it with such joy that she looks towards the sky at her friend, Mr. Plain. I think that's what the disciples experienced. In Luke 24 it says, When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Luke describes it in more detail in Acts chapter 1. We find these words. This is the word of the Lord. It's a strange word. We call it the ascension of Jesus. I imagine those disciples were much like my granddaughter with eyes fixed on the sky with wonder. When Jesus ascended, this is 40 days after his resurrection, 10 days before Pentecost, when Jesus rose and ascended, Number one, they were filled with joy, it says. Just like Olivia. So I, I just imagine they're like smiling. And... But secondly, it says that they worshipped him as the resurrected Christ reclaimed his rightful place. But there's more. More like that plain ritual warms my heart I think the warmth of that memory helped the disciples remember one thing to know when Jesus is not physically present. It's the central calibration of the heart of the Easter people. And it's this Jesus Christ is Lord. This idea of ascension is all throughout the New Testament, actually. Paul the Apostle didn't witness it that day, but he captures what this neck-to-the-sky experience was like. In Ephesians 1, he says, "...I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe." that power is the same same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms that power for you for you for me is the identical same power it is because of his lordship that we see in this ascension That the power of resurrection, Paul says, is his incomparably great power for us who believe. Here's a question. Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? If you do, the Scriptures tell us we have incomparably great power within us. This event so impacted the disciples from from that moment on. They saw Jesus as Lord of everything. Now the angels are a little humorous to me in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Here the apostles are, they're gazing with their mouths probably wide open at the sky. And what do the men say? Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I don't know. We just saw someone rise up into the sky. I think I would be gazing up into the sky too, don't you? But the inference is this. Listen guys, now is not the time to go skyward hoping for Jesus to come back. Get your eyes off the sky and get them on the earth where you walk and live and live with the realization of who Jesus really is is you see just before his ascension jesus said that they would receive power in verse eight remember maybe you remember those words and he says that power you receive that incomparably great power by that you will be my witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria and the ends of the earth wherever you find yourselves you'll be my witnesses notice what he does not say He does not say, you will go and do some witnessing. He says, you will be my witnesses. I've said before that the resurrection is evidenced by how the early church just came into existence in their lives. And I agree with that. But that occurred because of what they became. They became witnesses. And it was not something that was forced. It was something that was a product of their worship and love for Jesus. And I ask myself this question as I read that. Is that the same for me? Is that true of me? Alan Kreider wrote a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. What a word that is, ferment. And he said this. It was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was Christians who attracted them. And outsiders found Christians attractive because of their Christian habits. It was Christians, their very lives, that were formed as a result of seeing Jesus, worshiping Jesus as Lord. It was the choices they made to be formed as his followers. The church was attractive to outsiders, not because of a plan or program, but because they had very visibly interesting behavior that was a result of their practice of worshiping Jesus as Lord? Is my life attractive because the way I worship Jesus as Lord? Because as I live with Jesus as Lord, I become evidence that Jesus is Lord. As I live with Jesus as Lord, I become the evidence that Jesus is Lord. That's very convicting for me. In other words, when we're talking about witness, we're talking about the witness of winsomeness, a winsome life, a life that is attractive because of Jesus. And yet we live that life in a very unsettled world. Nothing creates more angst than an unsettled tomorrow, true? I think that's being true, proven true today. Understandably, an uncertain future is a place of increased stress and anxiety. But this picture informs how we live in the present with an unknown future. Because here's the truth. The future is always unknown. Always. Now these days may increase... Awareness of the unknown. They may tend us towards catastrophic speculation about what is unknown, but the future has been and always will be a place of mystery. What do we need? A present foundation for a future unknown and uncontrollable to us is needed. Without that foundation, we can expect anxiety. Without that foundation, we could expect fear. Without that foundation, we could expect angst. Except when Jesus is Lord. Even Lord of the future. Again, those angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And as soon as those disciples heard this, I can't help but think that it snapped their minds back to the words of Jesus that he had said to them previously before his crucifixion, the night before, he said this, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. In their short-sightedness, disciples made an assumption we all make. We all would have said the same thing, made the same assumption. They assumed if they had Jesus around all the time when they wanted him there, that would be best. If they had him physically with them all the time. But what they failed to see was his ascension made him accessible when he was needed most, which was all the time and in all the places. As Christians... We're to live with the assurance that whatever our future holds and whatever our present deals us, God will meet us there. What does that sound like? Just over the weekend, I asked a family that was struggling with cancer treatments, the unknown future, and I said, what can we do? Is there anything we can do to support you? Here's the answer. Prayers that honor the Lord, prayers that we will honor the Lord at every step in the process and people will see his presence through the journey. Whew. That's what it looks like. Not in some nebulous sermon, but when the drip of chemo is real. And when the unknown future is very unknown. I once heard Dr. Jess Middorf say this, we do not take God where God is not. There is no place where God is not at work right now we do not take God where God is not God will meet us there because Jesus as Lord is also Jesus as foundation and future and you see as witnesses that's the witness of confidence in God the witness of a confidence in God not that everything is going to be, work out exactly how we want it to, but I recently said to someone how I'm so impressed and appreciate the way in which, in the troubling questions and in the challenging circumstances, they continue to declare Jesus as their Lord nonstop, not in some way that forgets or doesn't think about the pain, but in a way that invites him in. And what a witness of confidence. But then there's this, this whole idea of ascension and lordship. This part of Scripture, many suggest, points to the completion of Christ's earthly ministry and mission. This is how the Scriptures put it. In Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the finisher. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the primary themes of Scripture when it comes to God and us in the world over and again is that God will finish what he started, that God does not abandon us, that God does not give up on us. As it says in Philippians, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So remember this. When your heart is growing weary, when you want to give up, when you're just not sure you want to keep going, God keeps going. And God doesn't give up. And God will finish what he started in your life Hebrews says, so then with endurance let us also run the race that is laid out in front of us. You and your future are in God's hands. Jesus is still working in your life and in our world because Jesus is Lord. And so he endures with us through thick and thin. He's with us through thick and thin. And that translates into the witness of resilience. One of the most essential Places of witness needed in our world today. The witness of resilience holding fast. But then remember last week we talked about the Spirit of God hovering over the emptiness of creation which made it an opportunity for God. And that same Spirit hovers over us. We, we said in Him we live and move and have our being. It is the Holy Spirit of God that hovers over the secular world, offering us a great opportunity right now. So how do we seize that? Well, hear me clearly when I say this. Knowing Jesus is Lord is not enough. Knowing Jesus is Lord it's not enough singing the songs about Jesus being Lord, it's not enough. What we need is to know Jesus as Lord. You see, there's a difference there. The disciples didn't know Jesus is Lord. They knew him as their Lord in real time. And what it did was it gave them a freedom to live lives of a generosity of spirit. It gave them a freedom to live lives of sacrificial love. It gave them a freedom to live lives of full surrender. The word witness comes from the same root as the word martyr. And so they were able to give their lives away. They had freedom to give their lives away just like the Lord they worshiped. And their lives revealed the truth the reality, the authenticity of the gospel. I know sometimes we are prone to think that the world is against God and the church. I don't believe that. I believe the world watches and wishes that what we say about Jesus and his love is true because I believe locked into every person's DNA is a hunger for God and a longing to be loved, especially by God. So I think the world is looking for this in us. A secular religious relative of mine made a comment to me months and months ago. They were commenting, now remember, they're talking to me, a Christian pastor. They were commenting on the way Christians were being poor examples of Christ in the middle of the pandemic and in society in general. Now, that was an overgeneralization by their own admission, but they were speaking in a conversation from sincerity of heart. And then they said this to me, they said, if you say you're a Christian, then you better practice what you preach. That came to me from a secular, irreligious, loving relative. Well, that's directly connected to this primary meaning of the Lordship of Jesus, Again, in Ephesians 1.20, Paul says God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now here it comes. Here it comes. The church, which is his body. Here it is. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christians are to be the fullness of Jesus in everything. We are to fill the world with his presence. What does that look like? Well, you may know the words from Philippians 2 that tell us Christ made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And then it goes on to say that therefore God exalted him to the highest place, ascension. Then it goes on to say that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, that statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, was and is An affront to the ruling powers. And after the death of Julius Caesar, his son Augustus declared that his father was a god. And therefore he was the son of a god. And this process was repeated with all the Caesars so that they would declare Caesar is Lord. But in his ascension. The Caesars of the world, both then and now, have been upstaged by Jesus the King and Lord. Hang with me on this. So the early Christian truth-tellers were reminding the world for all time that any trust in the powers of man above the powers of God was misplaced trust. And here's why that's a problem. Because Jesus does not, Jesus doesn't do like kingly things. Jesus does not try to be a power monger. He gives power away. He's not a political mover and shaker. He dwells with the least of these. He does not insist on submission. He invites into relationship. He does not appease the rich and the powerful. He lifts the poor and marginalized. He does not demand his royal rights that he deserves. But he seeks what is right for the sake of others. Or as David Young said, it might actually be difficult to imagine anyone looking less like a king than Jesus did. And yet, that king demands our allegiance, our earthly allegiance. But not for power, or earthly gain, or self-serving rule. But rather to grace and for mercy and with sacrificial acts of love. And that's why the church grew. And that's why outsiders were attracted to the early Christians. All because of one truth. Jesus Christ is the Lord now. Right now. Which led their lives to this truth of witness. It was the witness of authenticity. Ask anyone under the age of 20... And you know, one of the things that they would want more than anything is authenticity in the lives of those who declare Jesus as Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer posed the question, who is Jesus Christ for us today? That's a piercing question for me, isn't it? Who is Jesus today? Because it does recognize the need to give our allegiance to him. Not to ourselves or any other person, place, or thing. It calls me to seek his vision of his kingdom. Not my vision for his role in the world as I think it should be. It it means being serious about that prayer. His kingdom come. His will be done. So yes, the Easter people are the witnesses. Witnesses to who Jesus Christ is right now. And yes, we covered all kinds of territory in life. But Jesus Christ is the Lord of all of life. So, when you step outside today, on this beautiful day as Julie said it was, lift your head up and stare into the sky. Just do it. Go out there. If you don't want anyone else to see you doing it, just go hide someplace in your backyard. Look up. Just stare at the sky. And as you do, remember that your life and our world are held by the Lord of all. And pray that your heart and our lives are stirred to live for Him and for the world to see him through your life, my life. Because nothing matters. Nothing, nothing matters except faith expressing itself in love in the Lordship of Jesus. So go look at the sky. And You may want to look up and wave and just say, Jesus, you're my Lord. And walk into the day as a witness to that truth. Jesus Christ is Lord right now. Where is it that you need him to be Lord? Right now. Let him be that. Our worship team is going to come as we pray together and then sing in closing. Lord, just thank you so much today that every fiber and every factor of life can be sitting under your lordship. We pray today, Lord God, that we do affirm the truth that you are Lord, that Jesus is Lord. But today, Lord God, as never before, we pray that we live with Jesus as Lord of every detail, of every corner, of every place of our life and our world. And as we do so, may we do so in your incomparably great power as we trust you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.